Well, good morning, Parkview. It's good to see you. You know, and before we get started, I just, uh, I don't know, I just want to say a personal kind of thank you to you as my church. You know, thank you for allowing me to be one of your pastors, allowing me to get up here and talk every once in a while that you entrust your high school students with me. Uh, thank you. It's been a joy to be here. Uh, your grace and your patience uh, is really appreciated. So thank you. I'm glad to be here. I hope that you're glad to be here as well. We start a new series today, which is always exciting. It's a series called Free Indeed. And we talked a lot about freedom last week at Easter, talking about you know, when you come to Jesus, uh, he sets you free. In John 8, 36, Jesus says, The Son has come, he has set you free, and he has set you free indeed. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at what does that freedom mean? What does that freedom do for us? What sort of implications does this freedom have in our life? You know, we have certain ideas of what freedom means, especially in America. We're very proud of our freedom. Uh, I went through a, a lovely stage in high school where anytime I did something that someone didn't like, I just said, it's America. It's a free country. You can do what I want. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends during that season. Uh, it was pretty obnoxious. But is that what freedom is? We can just do whatever we want to do without any sort of repercussions, without any sort of consequences. No one tells me what to do. I do what I want. I'm free. What, what, what does spiritual freedom really mean? So that's going to be the subject of the next uh, couple weeks in this series. And we start with looking at a metaphor in Romans 6. It's a metaphor that's throughout all of the New Testament. Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians. I mean, it's all throughout the New Testament, but perhaps most explicitly in Romans 6. And it's a metaphor that Paul uses. He says that we are slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to God. And today we're going we're gonna to address how, how could we be free and be slaves? These seem to be contradictory metaphors. These seem to be contradictory ideas. And so in Romans 6, if you would turn there with me, we're going to look at what Paul says and we're going to explore this idea of freedom uh, through this metaphor of slavery. He says this, starting in verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin. And you have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Well, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And so while we can certainly get on board with this idea that we are free from our sin, that does seem liberating. How, how could being a slave to something else produce freedom? You know, and before we go on, it's important to clarify Paul's metaphor because, you know, when we say slave, we think of a lot of different things in our context. You know, and a metaphor is a, is a device that uses a, a concrete idea or a concrete object to explain, to help the reader or the listener help understand an abstract idea. So the concrete image here, the concrete object, the concrete institution is this institution of slavery, and it helps us understand this abstract idea of what does it mean to belong to Jesus? What does it mean to have new life in Jesus? 
And so Paul is using this image, this metaphor of slavery to to illuminate, to help illustrate this idea of belonging, total belonging, total dependence to, not free to be your own. It's important that we clarify that because when we think of modern slavery, we think of 18th and 19th century slavery, all sorts of other images come to our mind, images of racism and dehumanization and abuse, civil war. That's the kind of, usually the images that we associate with slavery. We need to be careful not to read those into this text Because in Paul's first century context, while being a slave was not uh, an admirable position, it was not something you would strive to be, it was absent of some of those images that we often think of. So we need to be careful not to extend the metaphor past what it's supposed to be used for. So for instance, if I were to say, like, that football player is strong, he's, he's an oak tree. You would know from my metaphor that I'm saying that he's big, that he's solid, that he's immovable, that he's mighty. You, you wouldn't for a second think that I'm saying that his, skin, that his skin is like bark or that he has you know, leafy arms or that he has a root system or that he uses the sun to gain food. You wouldn't think of those things, dropping acorns on the ground. That would be, that would be pushing the metaphor way beyond what I intended. And it not only ceases to be effective, at some point it starts to become counterproductive to the image and the illustration. And so for the sake of today, what, what is Paul trying to draw out of this slave metaphor? And a New Testament scholar named Murray Harris, he wrote a book that, that kind of chronicles the entire imagery throughout the New Testament. And in his introduction, he sums up kind of the heart of what Paul is talking about when he talks about first century slavery. He says, at the heart of slavery, ancient, modern, are the ideas of total dependence the forfeiture of autonomy, and the sense of belonging wholly to another. And so while this helps clarify maybe a little bit of what Paul is talking about, it doesn't answer the question, how is belonging wholly to another, forfeiting your autonomy, autonomy, how is that any better to do it to sin or to Jesus? Either way, it seems like I'm a slave. But it doesn't answer that question. So what is the difference? Why is it more advantageous to serve one or the other? The The first reason... I think, it has everything to do with the master. The first reason has everything to do with the master. When you serve sin, when you're a slave to sin, this master over here takes. This master is a taker. Takes joy, takes identity, takes purpose, takes meaning. And ultimately, the text says, this master takes life itself. This master produces death. This master, to serve righteousness, to serve God, to live a life that is committed to Jesus, this master is every bit of a giver. This is the most generous, the most sacrificial master ever to be known. In fact, this relationship between master and slave completely flips the model on its head. Because this master cares so deeply for his slave, for the, the, the person that has chosen to belong to him. This person cares so deeply that he would give even of himself, even his own life for his slave. He's generous and he's kind and he's giving. And the difference in the two masters makes all the difference in the world. It's why being a slave over here is something to, to run from and being a slave to Jesus is something to be desired. Another way that Paul addresses this, I think it's helpful. He says that, that this master over here is something that you are free from, and this master over here is something that you are free to. He says this in verse 18. He says, you have been set free from sin, 
you've become slaves to righteousness. And then again in 22, now you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of God or to God. It seems that he's saying that this master over here is something that you want to get as far away from as possible because it's restricting, because it sucks the life from you, and so you run from it. You are free from it, but in in kind of Paul language, it's one movement to then be free to. To be free from is to be free to this life that gives. And part of the beauty of this language is that Paul sets up this this either-or condition, not a both and. He sets up this either or. He seems to say that being free from and free to are two sides of the same coin. You ever, you ever flipped a coin and have it land directly on its side? You ever, has that ever happened without the help of a wall or a chair? It's never happened to me. Um, it's, one, it's two sides, same coin. You have two choices, either or. And unfortunately for us, that eliminates this area, right? That eliminates this middle, and we love the middle. (laughs) We love being in the middle, where we say, well, I'm not, I mean, sin, slave to sin, that seems intense. That seems dramatic. I'm not that. But Jesus, this new life, I don't really want that. I would like to camp here. I'd like to build my house here. I would like to put down roots here in this ambiguous middle ground. The problem with the middle ground, the reason that we love the middle ground, is because we have a shallow understanding of sin and we have a shallow understanding of the life that God has called us to. You see, our shallow understanding of sin, over here, our shallow understanding of sin, we have been trained, we have been conditioned to think that sin is a handful of things that are wrong. It's, it's, we, we were taught this in Sunday school all throughout and say, what is sin? The kid raises his hand. He says, well, sin is lying and it's cheating and it's murder and it's being mean to people. And so sin in our minds is this, is, is this list of a half dozen, ten things that we know to be wrong. And so then it allows us in this middle section to say, I haven't done those ten things, or maybe I do them every once in a while, but I'm certainly not enslaved to them. So I'm not that. I'm not entrapped in sin. But sin is much deeper than that. Much deeper. Sin is a condition of our heart. It's a a posture towards God. Sin says that I am the center of the universe, and if God somehow fits into that, great. But God will fit into my universe, my life. I'll do what I want to do, and I'm going to keep God at arm's length. I'm going to refuse to let him run my life. It's both a rebellion towards God and an indifference towards God. They are both sin and they both result in death. To be indifferent towards God, to not care about what he wants for your life, to not allow him in is sin as much as active rebellion is sin. Augustine was one of our early church fathers back in the 5th century and he, he coined this term incurvitus in C, this idea that we're curved in on ourselves. That's how he describes sin. We're curved in on ourselves. And then Martin Luther, 16th century reformer, picked up on this language, and he says something fascinating about this curvature in on ourselves, about this idea of sin being tied to our selfishness. He says this, 
our nature by the corruption of the first sin is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. This world is about me. You know, Tim Keller is a, a pastor and an author in New York City. He's written some things that have been very helpful to the church. And he published this little book. It's called Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's tiny. It's like 50 pages, something like that. It takes, you know, 20 minutes to read. Next week, it will, it will be available in the Resource Center. It's five bucks. I would encourage you just to pick it up and read it. His thesis is, what would it look like to forget ourselves, get out of the way so that God can lead our life. And in talking about this idea of pride about ourselves, he defines it this way. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Sin is so much deeper than a handful of actions that we know we shouldn't do. Lying behind those actions is ourselves, our desire to be king of the world. And then out of that come these things like greed and self-righteousness and racism and hatred. And then out of that come these actions that we all know to be wrong. But there is something lying deep behind them. You know, to illustrate, uh, Brittany and I, my wife, got into a fight last weekend. I know that's never happened to any of you. But we got into a fight last weekend, and it was about something incredibly significant and important and personal uh, it was about who would unload the dishwasher, uh, which I loathe. I hate unloading the dishwasher. It's the worst. It's, okay, you get it. Uh, it's the worst. I hate it. And so it was Friday. It was Good Friday, actually. And Brittany comes home um, from her long day, and I come home from a long day of writing and then doing some stuff here for Good Friday. And we come home, and she asked me to unload the dishwasher, which I hate doing. That's been well established, right? You guys understand. I hate doing it. And I was tired, and she was tired, and she was working on some other stuff. And, and I just flat out said, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. I don't need dishes. We use paper plates for today. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And so this argument ensues. And if you looked at that, that argument with your checklist, you had your checklist of all the things that are sinful, you would, look at your, you would have a hard time pinpointing what about that is sinful. There was, there was no lying. There was no cheating. There were no cuss, there were no cuss words. There were no... <laughs> you, would, you would have a hard time being like, what, if, I, if, if sin is a handful of actions that I know to be wrong, then that seems wrong and broken. But why? It's because at the heart of it was selfishness, was pride, was ego. It was void of any sort of care or love or servitude. That is sin. And so when we start to think about sin more broadly, we start to think about sin as the pattern in our lives that keeps God at arm's length, that refuses to let him come in and change our heart, then we start to understand why this middle ground does not work. I ended up unloading the dishwasher because uh, I, know, I know you really care. Well, no, it wasn't a good job. It was a process. <laughs> it was a process. The joke of it is I spent all day up until I spent all day writing this message. And I, I found this, this, I remembered this Luther quote about this curve into the self, and I'm literally arguing with my wife thinking I know that this is wrong, and I know that I'm being selfish, and I know that this is all about me, and yet I'm still going to do it. That's sin. The other reason for the middle ground 
is this shallow view of what God has actually called us to, what it means to live the life that God has made us to live. Because you might be sitting there and you say, well, isn't, isn't being a Christian, isn't, isn't being a slave to Jesus just this, this new set of things that we can and can't do? Isn't it, when, I, when I become a Christian, when I decide to follow him, isn't it just this new set of rules and regulations and things to stay away from and things that I have to sacrifice towards? And that's a legitimate, I mean, that's a legitimate thought. That those are legitimate feelings. And I was actually struggling with that as well as I wrote and as I, as I wrestled with this, test, with this text. I was trying to, how do I illustrate what it means to follow Jesus and, and this, these perceived restrictions that come when you follow Jesus? So I came up with an illustration. And Brittany and I were sitting at dinner, and I said, B, I have this illustration I want to run by you for my sermon. I said, how about, tell me what you think. Being a slave to right, or being a slave to sin, being in bondage to sin is like having the keys to Six Flags, which is an amusement park, roller coasters and stuff. It's like having the keys to Six Flags after hours. You're welcome to go in and you can roam all around the park all you want, but there are no vendors there, there are no dipping dots there, there are no rides running. You can't actually experience the park. You're free to roam and you can walk through, you have the whole park to yourself, but everything that it was meant to do, everything that is fun about the park is turned off. You, you can't experience it. And I said, and following Jesus is like having the keys to Six Flags, but you go during business hours. And you get to ride the rides. You have to wait in these lines to ride the ride, but you, ha- you get to ride the, the rides, which is good. And she looks at me, and she's like, that's an awful illustration. <laughs> uh, she has the gift of compassion, <laughs> empathy. She said, that's an awful illustration. I was, and I was like, what? she says, it seems like what you're saying is that following Jesus is kind of a drag, no one likes waiting in line. Waiting in line stinks. But hey, you get to ride the ride, so at the end it's okay. It's kinda, it kind of feels like you're saying that like, following Jesus is you've got to do these things that, aren't, that you don't really love to do, and it's kind of, kind of boring or kind of tedious. You don't enjoy it, but hey, at the, end of the, at the end of the ball game, you get to ride a ride, and you get to have some dipping dots. Is that what you're saying? And I said, uh, maybe it is, and that's not good. <laughs> that's not... That's not fully understanding the life that God has made us to live. She said, following Jesus, she's brilliant. She said, following Jesus is you have the keys to Six Flags after hours, and all the rides are running, and all of the vendors are there, and you have access to roam the park, and you can experience the park the way it was meant to be experienced. Because no one wants to wait 90 minutes for a 90-second ride. That wasn't the intent of the park. That, it, that's what happens. But what the park was meant to do is you could ride these rides, you could enjoy your Dippin' Dots, and you could have a great time. That's the joy of the park. And I wonder how many of us, <laughs> I wonder how many of us think following Jesus like that first analogy. i got to wait in some lines. It's hot. You know, there's no shade. But eventually I get to the front of the line and I get to ride the ride. And then I start over. It's a shallow understanding of this new life that Jesus has called us to. 
This new life that Jesus has called us to reorients everything about us. It, it truly is a new life. The way that we used to see things, we don't see them that way anymore. They're, they're completely new categories. It's, 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 why, it's why lyricists say, I was blind, but now I see. That image has stuck over centuries because it's this idea that, that once I didn't understand, once this was boring, once this was restrictive, and now I see, now I see what life in Jesus is really about. And so this obnoxious coworker is no longer is no longer a nuisance for me but it's an opportunity to love them and to care for them. This need that arises in my community or in my family or in my church is no longer an obligation to give financially but it's it's an outpouring of a content heart because you understand that Jesus provides everything you need and so giving generously is now just what you do because your heart has been set free it's content. Serving your community, say it in everybody does weekend, is not just an eye roll and an obligatory sign up. It is now, hey, there are people out there that matter, and so serving them is the least I could do because I want them to know that Jesus loves them. Everything shifts. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new, there are new categories. It's a new posture towards God. And I wonder how many of us are sitting here and we think, yeah, but, but aren't there all these rules still? And aren't there all these things that we have to do or not do? You know, Tim Keller helps us out again in his book, Prodigal God. He says this about this new life and addressing this idea of rules and regulations. He says, well, what makes you faithful or generous is not just a redoubled effort to follow moral rules. Rather, all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, self-understanding, identity, and our view of the world. Behavioral compliance to these rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. That's the new life. That's the life that God made you to live. So this morning, we have these two options. There's this either or. It's am I going to serve sin? I'm going to be a slave to sin? Or am I going to be a slave to Jesus, which is actually the most freeing thing we could do? It's an either or. And let me, let me quickly say, by saying it's an either or, by eliminating this, this little middle ground that we like to sit in, I'm not saying that this isn't a process, Okay. I'm not saying that it just it happens overnight and that's the only way that it happens. I'm very, we very much affirm the fact that getting to this point, that moving on this spectrum is a process. We walk with people in that process all the time here and we love it and we celebrate it. You know, I research everything that I buy practically. I just, that's, that, I don't know if you're like that. Anytime I'm going to make a purchase, i got to research it. i got to go online, i got to look at reviews, and i got to look at videos, and I go to the store, and I can actually touch it, and I can talk to a salesperson about it, and I can ask my friends if they have the same product. Anything that I research, I buy. I've been researching batteries for smoke detectors for like two months, okay? Just anything, okay? But nowhere in that process would I call my friends up, or I would come to work and say, hey, Dave, I, I got these new batteries for my smoke detector. Well, actually, no, I don't have them. I'm in the process of, of deciding which one is best, but I basically have them. I, would, I wouldn't make that claim that I have, that I have these, this, this new thing, this purchase, until I've actually made the purchase. The process is good. 
It's healthy. It, it leads to an informed decision. The research, the emotions, the experiences behind this process, I, we affirm wholly. But at some point, you come to a decision and you say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. And this old life, this old master, I'm done with him and I'm going to follow Jesus. I also want to quickly affirm that then at this moment where you decide to follow Jesus, you are not perfect. <laughs> you don't just automatically be made, you're not just automatically made to look at your coworker as an opportunity to love and generosity, something that just naturally flows out of your heart and doesn't happen like that. In fact, Paul says something really encouraging in verse 18. He says, it leads, becoming a new creation leads to holiness. And acknowledging this process that it pushes you along. You don't start holy. You don't start living the life exactly the way that God made you. But this decision pushes you towards it. It doesn't say that you never ever revert to doing things that your old master would have had you do, i.e. the clinky dishwasher debacle of 2017. doesn't mean that you never go back to those things ever again and that you are fully perfect. But what it means is it sets you on this path towards what God would have for you. You know, the, kind of our last illustration to help us understand this would be, I don't know if you've ever had a fish as a pet or you've ever gone fishing, but how familiar you are with the aquatic world. But the fish, <laughs> the fish does not swim up to the surface, as far as I know. The fish does not swim up to the surface of the water and look at the land and long to be on land. Unless you're Ariel from Little Mermaid, I understand that. It did not work out super well for about 60 minutes, and then I got wrapped up, and so it was all good, but... The fish does not swim to the surface and look at the land or look at a boat and say, oh, I wish to be on land. There's so much for me on land. I could do so much more if I was on land. The fish understands that for them, life is in the water and that land equals death. The fish understands that I've been given gills and scales and fins to thrive in water. And so land is not an opportunity for freedom. Land equals death. Water equals life. And if the fish sees the water as restrictive in any way, the fish has not understood themselves, and they certainly haven't understood water. If this new life following Jesus seems restrictive, seems boring, seems legalistic, we haven't understood ourselves, and we certainly haven't understood God and his plan for our life. You know what's amazing? This movement this, that I've been walking this stage, this movement from, from sin to Jesus, from serving one master to the other, this movement and this decision moment ought to be celebrated when it happens. Absolutely. And we celebrate that movement, that decision, through baptism, which we get to, which we get to celebrate in just a few minutes. Because what baptism is, this is incredible, what baptism is, is it's like a, like a five to ten second play. You guys have seen a play before. It's a five to ten second play that tells one story. It tells the story that I was once dead, and then up out of the water, I'm alive. And so without saying anything, being in that tub and going under the water and back out, in five seconds, that person is affirming, I once was a slave to sin, and now I follow Jesus. 
is something worth celebrating. And so in just a few minutes, we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate with people as they tell their church family, listen, I'm a new person. I'm not serving this master anymore. There's nothing for me there. That's death. This, this is life. And I want to extend an invitation to you. Listen, if, if this is your story, <laughs> If this is your story, you feel the spirit moving in you. This is your story. And you want to tell people that, listen, I don't serve this master anymore. I have this new life. If that's you and you want to tell your church family that that's what God has done in your life, you can get baptized today. We'll do it. We have everything for you. You'll go out those doors. Someone will lead you to this hallway that has all the clothes you would need, a towel. We'll baptize you in 10 minutes. And you can get up in front of your church family and you can say, I'm done with that life. I'm living this life now. Because this life, this master gives. This master is worth, this master is worth giving up that master for. Listen, if that's you and God is stirring in you, the Holy Spirit is stirring in you, say, I want to tell people that that's my story. We'll baptize you. And you don't have to say anything. You're like, well, am I going to have to speak? Am I... Listen, you being in the tub and getting dunked and coming out, that's the story. That's you telling your church family, I'm done and I'm here. Just a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And as I do, I'm going to pray for us. And if, if you want to get baptized today, again, we have everything that you would need. If you want to get baptized today, as we stand, I'm just going to ask you to go out to the back doors. Someone will receive you, give you some instructions and we'll continue on with your service. Would you stand with me? God, we are grateful that you give us new life. You love us, you're generous, and you provide new life. God, we are so excited to see the stories in front of us unfold in five to ten seconds just to see this, this act, this beautiful act where they're going to tell their church family about their new life. Go public with the faith and love that they have in you. God, I pray that if there are people here that are contemplating this, that are wondering, have I ever made that decision? Do I want to tell people about that today? God, I pray that you give them the boldness to step out and to stand up in front of their church family and make a declaration of their new life. We pray this all in your name. Amen. I don't know about you, but that's pretty fun. Huh? That's what church is about. I don't know if you can see what their shirts say, but their shirts say, this is what grace looks like walking around. And that is never more true than in that moment of baptism. What an exciting morning this has been. I am so glad that you were here to be a part of it. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to let you go out into the world filled up, energized, and excited. At Parkview, we will never, ever let you stay over here. We're going to do everything in our power to help you through the love of Jesus Christ move from that side to this place of freedom. These folks just express that to you in a very public way, but you get to express it outside these walls every single moment of every single day. 
Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for these lives that have been transformed. We are so grateful that you love us enough to meet us right where we sit. That you'll never love us today more than you did yesterday. You'll never love us more tomorrow than you do right now. We can never earn it. There is nothing we can do to make you love us more than you do right now. Will you fill us with that? And will you set us free to live the life that you have made for us to live? It's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen. Have a great day.